Amato's fifth quarter is partnered with the Inner Sanctum. The Inner Sanctum, founded in 2020, is the new ball game in sports journalism, which aims to take you behind the closed doors of sporting clubs around the country in an effort to tell the stories of those on the field. Visit the Inner Sanctum at www.theinnersanctum.com.au as well as following them on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and LinkedIn. The Inner Sanctum, unique interviews, unique content for you. This is Travis Stokes. This is Greg Oddy. This is Carson Edwards. This is Brett Maher. This is Dale Pickett. This is Eugene Greenwich. This is Kevin Brooks. This is Jack Fitzpatrick. This is Dale McDonald. This is Sam Jacobs. This is Cal Brooks. This is Marcus Burris. This is Sean Redditch. This is Tony Spackenthal. This is Andrew Blahoff. This is Graham Corn. This is Brian Curl. This is Jason Akamanis. This is Chris McDermott. And this is Mike Ellis. And you're listening to Amato's Fifth Quarter. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of A5Q. I'm your host, Dan, and what a week it has been. I mean, I'm sure many of you who listen to this podcast know I'm based here in South Australia, and we're in lockdown once again, unfortunately. Um, Probably a month or two ago, we thought that this coronavirus was, I don't want to say over, but we'd seen the worst of it, And, and I was guilty of thinking that as well, and then... In the blink of an eye, things change, cases go up, and we're back in lockdown. So it's been a tough week for everyone uh, who lives in, in South Australia and also Victoria and New South Wales. You know, Hopefully everyone is doing okay and they're, they're safe and they're at home, staying home and isolating and, and doing all those things. Hopefully you're not too bored. You found something to do because it's a really, really difficult time for everybody, but you just got to stay positive and, and if we just do the right thing, stay home, stay away from people, hopefully uh, this will, will be over soon. But look, this is the right place to come if you're looking for something to do because sitting at home all day, every day gets old very easily. So if you are looking for some entertainment and something great to listen to, Amado's Fifth Quarter is a great option because here on this podcast, I've had the pleasure of sitting down with many, many high profile sports people. Uh, to chat about their lives and their careers. Some notable names I have had on the show previously include Jason Akamanis, uh, Dustin Fletcher, Tyson Edwards, Al Green, Travis Dodd, Marcos Flores, Eugene Galekovic, uh, Daryl McDonald, and plenty, plenty more. So definitely go back into the archives and have a listen. I'm sure you'll find one there that you'd be uh, interested in listening to. But look, we're going to get into tonight's episode because episode 22 is another big one. Uh, tonight, my special guest is inaugural Perth Wildcats captain and one of the most important figures in the club's history. It's Mike Ellis, who's coming on the show here tonight. 
Now, Mike, along with his late father, Gordon, and his two brothers, Glenn and Brett, uh, pretty much started the Perth Wildcats. They were instrumental in the establishment of the club way back in 1982 when they were known as the West State Wildcats. Because of the incredible success of the Perth Wildcats, uh, of course, they, they made the finals for the first time in 1987 and since then to this day have not missed the finals once. Uh, a lot of people forget that those first few seasons, they really did struggle, didn't make the finals for the first five seasons in the league and had four or five coaches in those first few years. So they didn't have a lot of stability hit there at the club. Um, and it's really interesting in particular to listen to Mike Ellis talk about those first few years uh, at the club when they were known as the West State Wildcats. He, of course, does talk about the, the highs as well. He talks about the 1987 season, which for him was sort of a bittersweet moment because, of course, it was the first time the Wildcats made the finals, first time they made the grand final series. But just prior to that season starting, he did lose his father, Gordon. So him and his brothers uh, really dedicated that 1987 season to their late father, Gordon Ellis. He talks about the 1990 championship as well, of course, uh, under Cal Bruton, who I've also had on the show before. If you go back to episode 13, you can listen to that episode with Cal Bruton. Talks about the 1991 championship as well under Murray Arnold. But it wasn't all smooth sailing. He does talk about some some of the low moments in his life and his career. He talks about the very tragic passing of his teammate, Scott Fenton, who of course was in a tragic car accident with his fiance Tina in 1989. That was a, a really difficult time. He also touches on the very, very interesting story surrounding Tiny Pinder and him uh, being pretty much arrested uh, during one of the games in 1990, I believe it was. And he also talks about that 2003-04 season when he was the coach of the club and him wanting to continue the year after, but just didn't pan out sort of the way he would have liked. So you can't dispute Mike Ellis is one of the most important figures in the Perth Wildcats history. If there's no Mike Ellis, there, there was no Perth Wildcats. Who knows, if Mike Ellis hadn't have been around, would we be sitting here talking about the Wildcats making 35 consecutive finals appearances? Probably not. Throughout his career from 1982 to 1992, he played 302 NBL games, all of them, of course, for the Perth Wildcats, 3,802 points, 677 rebounds, and 1,601 assists. He's a two-time NBL champion from 19... He's a two-time NBL champion in 1990 and 1991. And as I've mentioned many times, he is the first ever captain of the Perth Wildcats. And his number six jersey has been retired by the club and hangs from the rafters at all Perth Wildcats home games. Let's welcome from the Perth Wildcats, Mike Ellis, about to come onto the ground. Listen to the hiss, listen to the growl. Perth Wildcats are on the prowl. Can you feel the heat? Listen to their feet. Tearing up the cotton, building up the heat. Here we come. Oh no, here we come. Oh no, here we come. Yeah, the first wildcats are on the prowl. Watch out if you're in the way. Listen to the hiss, listen to the growl. The first wildcats are on the prowl. Ah, on the prowl. Welcome back to Amato's fifth quarter, and today we've got a Perth Wildcat original, one of the foundation members of the club. It's Mike Ellis. Mike, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Pleasure, Daniel. So, Mike, it's been you know quite a few years now since you last played and coached the uh, the Wildcats. What have you been up to now in retirement, and do you miss the game of basketball? Well, yeah, you're right. It is a few years, mate. My uh, <laughs> quite some time, in actual fact. 
Uh, I actually run a uh, education supply company here in Perth. Um, we're the biggest supplier of uh, education resources for both primary and secondary schools here in WA, and I've been doing that for nearly 11 years now. Uh, this, you know, this working for a living does suck. You've got to actually do it. It was much better when you were just a professional basketball player, uh, but you know that's that's life, and I think that's the big thing that we try and let the kids know when they're growing up. Look, you you can only be a professional player for a certain period of time, and then you actually have to earn a living. Uh, a legitimate way, so to speak, uh, when you when you retire, because you're a long time retired. So, you know, that's that's something that I think a lot of the kids see. You know, the guys in the NBA, but such a small percentage of those people actually make it through. So they've got to really make sure that they're concentrating on their studies, and and they've got that as a backing as they as they're growing up and trying to become professional players. Yeah, it's very it's very rare that you retire from professional sport and you don't have to work a day for the rest of your life it's a very small minority so you've got to have other options case of injury or, or eventual retirement well that's exactly right you, you know you want you know you want knee knee reconstruction away from finishing your professional sporting career no matter what sport it is and you can see that in a lot of the afl players with the amount of injuries that they get a lot of very very promising players and this is both on on the male and the female side of things you know, have have gone on and look like being just, you know, the next big thing and then injuries struck them multiple times and then they just don't fulfill that. And if they haven't got anything to fall back on, then that can be a real issue. And what that does is that leads to mental issues with people because of depression and various things like that. So it's very important that all of that stuff gets taken care of when they're younger, when they're growing up, because if it doesn't, then it can be really a real problem for them later on in life. Yeah, it's such a domino effect when you talk about that mental health side of things that you've got to have an option B. You know, some I've heard quotes: "If you have a plan B, you're already planning to fail." But I, I think that's rubbish, personally. Oh, that, mate, that's that's just a cop out, as far as I'm concerned. You know, you you if you don't have a plan B, then you're an absolute idiot in my my book. You know, um, and it's not. I agree, it's not a cop out. It's just being smart. You know, that doesn't mean you don't give everything you've got to what you want to do and try and achieve, but you have to have a fallback position just in case, you know? Uh, it's, not a, it's not giving up. It's not saying that I'm not going to do the best I can possibly do, but it's just being smart for your future. No, I totally agree with you there. Taking you back to the start, so you're a Perth boy from the very start, born and bred in Western Australia. Um, could you maybe give the listeners a bit of an insight into your upbringing, family life, and also where your love of basketball first started? Yeah, so I, I uh, was born and bred. I'm uh, one of four boys. I, um, my father and mother uh, were you know, born and bred here in WA as well. Uh, they got married at a fairly young age and started a family. Uh, my father was actually a state tennis and a state squash player, which is unusual because normally squash and tennis players can't achieve at a high level because it's a very different sort of sport, even though it's a racket sport. Um, so he was he was very good at both of those. But once he had the family, he started to have the family. Uh, he was old school. He's like, right, mum, you stay home and work. You look after the family. So she did all the cooking, cleaning and washing and, and was home with the kids all the time. And he went to work and he gave up his sport for about uh, oh, probably 10 years. Um, and he was playing at a state level of all of those things. And to, to sacrifice that was a phenomenal thing to be able to do and, you know, just do that for the family to help raise the kids and put enough uh, 
food on the table for us to eat and, and be able to give us um, the opportunities that we wanted to have. And, uh, you know, I still admire him for that. It's, uh, it, was a, it was a huge commitment and sacrifice that he made for us, uh, for the family. And uh, the one rule that he always had was, uh, I don't care what it is, you're going to play a sport. You can pick it, but you're going to play a sport. And his philosophy behind that was that you learn so many life skills by playing sport, you know, um, certainly team sports. Uh, so, you know, we all tried a few different things. I was a, I was a swimmer uh, in the early days. I was probably a little bit of a, uh, a bit more uh, fat sort of kid when I was younger. Uh, so maybe that's why I swam. I floated pretty well with it. Um, but I started swimming and then funnily enough, as I started to swim and, and do a bit more of that, I started to lose a little bit of that, that puppy fat as I got younger. Um, my uh, brothers started to play around and, and start playing basketball uh, with some of their mates. I looked at that and thought, oh, that's an interesting sport. Um, went down and played with some of my mates just down at uh, the local high school. And I didn't start till I was 13. So effectively, I was a really late starter. Um, when you look at all the kids now that are playing at six and seven. Um, so I started playing then, got involved. I was completely useless when I started. Um, in actual fact, my very first game, I fouled out in about two minutes. And, uh, wow. you know, the pro- <laughs> yeah, well, the problem was that the coach said to me, look, you know, I said, what do I need to do? Just go get the ball. I said, okay, fine. He forgot to tell me that I wasn't allowed to run through people to do that. It's <laughs> <So>, not <laughs> AFL. <laughs> no, exactly, exactly. So, uh, so yeah, I uh, I didn't have a great great start, but I just really enjoyed playing the game, and and uh, yeah, it was good. And my father kind of watched this play. I was fortunate enough to make a state team at under sixteen level, which was was fairly quick given that I started so late. Um, and I might add, I, I I started as a power forward in the in my under sixteen state team. Oh really? Which is a bit scary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was I was the height I am now, which is you know a good six foot, I guess six one maybe. Um, I was that at 14, and uh, the thing that upset me was I never, I never grew anymore, which was really disappointing. But that's the way it goes. So yeah, as a, as my first state team, I was a power forward. Um, but we went away, and and Dad watched watched us play over there, and kind of looked at it and went, yeah, you know what? I I think these guys can do better. Uh, he knew absolutely nothing about the sport, but decided that he wanted to get involved and get back in the sport, and he just went about. You know, trying to milk as much information out of any coach of any note around the country, any coach that came over from the States, all that sort of stuff. And uh, he just became a student of the game. Never played it, but became one of the better coaches around around in uh, WA for sure. And again, it was that sort of commitment that he had. And he ended up uh, coaching us and coaching multiple state teams over his, uh, over his lifetime. And, you know, Certainly got the, the mantle as one of the better coaches in Perth and, and ended up coaching the Wildcats in, in 83 as well. That was kind of my background, uh, where we came from. And, uh, we were very competitive as a family. You know, we played two on two out in the backyard because there was four of us. And I got to tell you, there was nothing tougher than anything that we ever did than what it was out in the backyard. Yes, yeah, remarkable story. And you mentioned your father who had an instrumental part in the establishment of the Perth Wildcats. But as you, you, Coming through the rank, your late teens, early twenties. When was it that you realised you could actually play basketball at a very high level? I think playing state teams. I was, I was fortunate enough, even at uh, uh, under eighteen level, I was uh, starting to play in what was the district competition here, which is effectively the NBL one version uh, or the SBL version. 
uh, I started playing at that level at, at 16 and 17. So, you know, I was doing okay at that point. Uh, we start, I started to be part of the state senior men's program uh, once I was at that 18 mark and then playing at under 20s. I, I was uh, uh, played in under 20s as well and we did pretty well there. I was very fortunate enough to make the very first under-20 Australian national team. And uh, I was the only pers- only player from WA that made that. And we went on a tour of the Philippines. And that was probably the thing that got me going, is, is making a national team and playing for, for Australia was something that I never even dreamed of. And to do that uh, really inspired me. And, and it was just fantastic to be able to have that opportunity. Funnily enough, it was like, congratulations, you've made the Australian team. It's going to cost you $1,000 uh, to go yeah, away. Oh, wow. <laughs> Bloody hell. So my, my parents had to try and find that money. And, and I've got to tell you, we were never rich. We were never well off. You know, Dad worked his tail off for everything that we got. So, But he, he went, well, there's no way I'm letting you miss out on an opportunity like this. So he did whatever he could to, to find the money and, and give me the opportunity to go away. But that's the difference these days. There wasn't the funding back then, but that was the initial team that is now effectively what the the national. I think it's the Emus, isn't it? The uh, the young uh, under twenty group that always goes away and plays in a, you know the world championships and all that sort of stuff. Well, that was the, the very first team that uh, that was the start of it all. So uh, I was fortunate enough to make that and went away and played uh, internationally overseas. It was just uh, it was just an amazing. An amazing thing to do. So, Philippines and Argentina, I think we went to, and uh, yeah, that was that was an eye opener to play against teams from other countries. It was just fantastic. I must admit, it was just something that really stoked the fire in me to want to be able to continue to do that and play at a high level. Yeah, and you mentioned um, representing Australia back in your day. Is it a bigger accomplishment to play for Australia than to play, say, in the NBA? Whereas these days, it's almost more of a of a goal for an aspiring basketball player to play in the NBA than play for Australia. It's almost like to represent the national team is not as big of an honour as playing in the NBA. Would you agree with that? Look, I think I think what it is now is it's more that the NBA, the reason players want to play in the NBA is purely and simply because of the money. <clears throat> you can set yourself up for life by playing in the NBA. You play for Australia, there's no financial reward for it. Uh, I mean, they still get paid some money to, to, you know, play for your national team and all that sort of stuff. There is some money there, but, you know, you can't compare it to the money in the NBA. The, the money and also the kudos that comes with that. You're very, it's now, a very glamorized environment. Very much so. Very much so. And, and to me, though, if you're able to play for Australia, if you're able to get to that level, that also gives you a much better opportunity to represent uh, yourself in the NBA as well. Because what's happened over the years is that the NBA and all the people over in the NBA, the scouts, all that sort of stuff, now recognise Australia as an absolute breeding ground for elite players. Whereas back in our day, America wouldn't have even known where Australia was. Now, they had no idea who we were. were. You know, we'd show up and play at Olympics and things like that. And they'd go, oh, geez, these guys aren't bad, but had no idea who we were. There was no... uh, NBL back in those days, certainly when I was growing up, there wasn't. Um, so, you know, that was a difficulty. But to me, the NBA is one thing, and I know there's a lot of money involved and all that, 
but I don't think there's any greater honour than to be able to put on the green and gold and represent your country. And, and I think that's something that is starting to get lost a little bit on some of these players. To play for your, for your country should be really, in theory, the biggest honour in your sporting career. It, it should be absolutely, in but I think I think if you'd ask, say any any player in their mid twenties, if you ask them, would you rather play for Australia or play in the NBA? I think you'd find not everyone, but probably more than fifty percent would say I'd rather play in the NBA. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree, and that's a sad, a sad indictment on where we're at. Um, that said, if you make the NBA, there's a very good chance you should still be able to play for your country. And you know, um, the problem with the NBA is there are people that will have contracts that preclude them from playing outside of anything than what they already have. Um, and, you know, to me, that's, that's a very sad, sad thing because, you know, you look at how many players around the NBA do represent their country, you know, and, and the NBA is now a multicultural league. It's not just the USA players anymore. You know, there's players from all different walks of life, all different countries, and, you know, they go back and, and the vast majority, they go back and proudly play for their country. And I think the Australians need to make sure that they do that same thing. Definitely agreed. Mike, we've got to get on to your Perth Wildcats career because I'm really interested to hear about those early days in the NBL. So you're a part of that first ever Perth Wildcats team in 1982. Back then, of course, they were known as the West State Wildcats. You played at Perry Lake Stadium, which could only fit a capacity of about, what, 800 people, something like that. Yep. And your father, Gordon Ellis, played an instrumental part in the establishment of the club. What are your memories from that 1981-1982 period when the Wildcats were, were established? Well, the, the thing was that, you know, when I was growing up, there was the NBA, the NBL, sorry, the NBL didn't start till 79, right? Now, it only had like four teams in it. It was kind of this fledgling, fledgling league. Most people, certainly over on the East Coast, certainly the Victorian side of things, said this won't last it's not going to work because there was i think uh, i think it was brisbane illawarra uh, newcastle and st kilda and i think they were the four teams that kind of started it and most of the other teams all went no 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 it's not going to catch on and all that sort of stuff i personally because i was told here in wa i was never going to make it um because i'm from wa um uh, to the level that I wanted to get to. So I actually moved to Melbourne for two years when I was 19 or 20 and played over there. That was around about the same time the M- MBL had started. So I was over there in 1979 and uh, 80. And then at the end of 80, I'd heard that there was a good chance. And I know I'd, you know, I'd been speaking to my father and him and a lot of the administrators, guys like Brian Aitken and, and Wayne Bubb and these guys who were in charge of basketball WA at the time. Uh, were instrumental in getting the, the sport up and running and, and getting WA into the NBL. And the word was at that stage, we were probably going to make it in 81. So I moved back to Perth because I had opportunities to play for other clubs in the NBL because it was starting to get uh, a little bit more traction. But my view was I wanted to represent WA in the NBL. I didn't want to represent somebody else or another team. I wanted to represent WA. So I came back uh, in 81. We didn't actually make it in 81, but in 82 we got granted um, a team. So we uh, we got in. The reason it was called the West State Wildcat was twofold. The first part of it, the West State, was that we actually were effectively the state senior team, uh, you know, the senior men's team who actually still played. So there were state senior competitions around, like there is the under 
16s, 18s, 20s. There was actually senior men's state competitions as well. Um, again, because the NBL wasn't around. So that was effectively what our team was. And we had a, a public a public uh, vote on what the name of the team should be. And it came back with the Wildcats and the Westgate Wildcats became the name of the team. So that's how that kind of uh, evolved. And that was the first start. We played it very late, as you said, about 800 people uh, at the game. And it was was packed out. I, I used to make a bit of a joke that would say we play in front of 800 seats, no bugger in them, but uh, that's not true. There was actually always uh, a full house when we first started. And the thing that I suppose strikes me the most out of all of those memories is walking into that first game and warming up and the crowd was packed. But the thing that really is indelibly etched into my brain is that I could basically look through that entire stand and probably name every single person in the stadium. I knew every one of them. They were all basketballers. They were all people that were interested in the sport, that were involved in the sport, that were for team, for you know, part of teams that I played with or against or, you know, all that sort of stuff. It was such a personal thing and that is something that you just can't replicate now. Um, but that was one of the things that, you know, really stands out for me as a really memorable part of... Uh, you know, that very first game we ever played against the Geelong Supercats. That's an awesome insight. How did the captaincy come about? And and also, what, what does it mean to you to be the first ever captain of the Perth Wildcats? Because that's, that's something that's yours and yours alone forever. Yeah, it is. It is. It's something I'm very proud of. Um, I guess it came about because I was effectively captain of the state team, the state senior men's team, even though... I was reasonably young. I was, uh, you know, early 20s at that point. Um, but um, because of, I guess, the level that I was playing at, um, I was the captain of the state team. And therefore, when the, the kind of it looked for the NBL team to come in, um, it was basically a vote and I got voted in as captain, which was fantastic. Um, and I think I am very proud of that. The one thing I'm proud of is that uh, I think, and I stand to be corrected here, but I think I'm the only player in the NBL that has ever played his entire career as captain. Um, so for my entire 11 years, I was captain of the team. Uh, so I started as captain and I retired as captain. Um, and to me, that's something that you know is, is very precious. It's not something I ever really think about. But when people bring it up, I go, yeah, I guess that is something that you know is, is pretty special and um, you know, I take great pride in. Yeah, I believe you are the the only one. That's that that's a very very rare in any sporting organisation. How many players are you going to have that start and finish as captain? Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know of many, and I, I must admit I don't go looking for it or, or seeing it. But you know, usually there's lots of different stats that get thrown up about different things. That's not one that I've ever seen anywhere else. So you know, I don't know. Maybe uh, maybe it's something unique to me. If it is, then that's fantastic. If it's not, well then. You know, it's not something that I particularly worry about. Due to the incredible su- success of the Wildcats, of course, 35 years in a row, haven't missed the finals. But many people do forget that you guys really did struggle in those early years. You had four different coaches in the first four years. So you had, I think, is it is it pronounced Henry Daigle in 1982? Henry Daigle, correct. Yep, yep. yep. Then your father, Gordon Ellis, in 83. You had Lynn Massey in 84. And then is it Jay Bremer in 85? Yeah, Jay Bremer in 85 and 86 was yep. Jay. Yep. That's right, yeah. So what do you think some of the reasons were for some of the sort of instability of the club in those early years? 
Look, I think there was a couple of things that went with that. The, the first one was that um, obviously we were trying to, you know, uh, set ourselves up in the league. And we didn't have the finances at that stage because the thing that people don't understand is for us to, to start in the NBL, we had some caveats put on us by the NBL, right? Because nobody wanted to travel to WA. It's too far. We're not flying all the way over there. So for each year, for the first three years of the league that we were in, so 82, 83, 84, we as a club had to pay a premium of an additional $45,000 per year. And back in 82, 3 and 4, $45,000 was a huge amount of money. We had to pay that to subsidise the teams travelling from over east to Perth. And that was one of the things that we had to do. The other thing that we had to do, and we're the only team that did it, was we would play triple headers. So we're not talking double headers, we're talking triple headers. So we would go away, we would play the first game, let's say, in Melbourne, we'd play the second game down in Hobart, we'd play the third game up in Brisbane, and that'd be Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And then we would come back to Perth um, Sunday night. So, you know, we were the only team that played triple headers. But not, not only that, and this is something that a lot of people don't understand, was that we never got paid. We weren't getting paid to, to play, right? I was still holding down a full-time job, as were all the other players. Did you get paid anything at all? Nope. Wow. So, well, that's not true. They gave us a bonus, right? So what they did is, if we won a game, we got, I think it was 25 bucks. If we lost it, then we didn't get anything. So, you know, if we won a game, we got a $25 bonus. Mate, we were still paying to get into the door. We were paying to get into the door to go and play to represent us WA in the NBL. That's crazy. People don't know any of that stuff, you know. It's just crazy stuff. But, you know, we were just so glad to be a part of it. We wanted to be a part of it, and it was fantastic. So there's that first part. Um, Basketball WA decided that what they wanted to do was they wanted a – coach that had been around for a while so Henry Daigle was probably one of the ultimate coaches in WA at that stage along with my father so Henry did the job and then he was assistant coach Uh, my dad was assistant coach to him he did it the first year and he basically said look you should be doing this so he stepped down and dad took over the second year the second year we were riddled with injuries we we lost uh, most of our import or we, we lost all of our imports to injuries and various things uh, they left, we had to bring new guys in that were nowhere near the level they needed to be, so we just got local guys. So we were basically playing with uh, just all the WA guys. Uh, and we still did fairly well. We lost, I think, of that season. I think we went 10 and 16 that that second season, but we lost uh, 10 games by three points or less. You know, now, you know, that, that means you're in the ball game. You're close, you're just not able to finish them. Uh, the, the, they decided at that stage that what they wanted to do was they thought it was better to bring in an American. They wanted to bring in an American coach. So Dad said, all right, that's what you want to do. That's fine. You do that. So they brought in Lynn Massey, which was the biggest mistake of all time. He was just atrocious. He was shocking. Uh, had no idea. It was a college coach, but a, you know I think it was an NAIA college, possibly Divi 3. You know, he came over, tried to treat all of us who were senior men still working for a living, doing all that, tried to treat us like high school kids, and it just was a disaster. We won three games that season. Um, so he got sent on his bike, you know, so he went 
back home. And then they brought in Jay Bramer, who'd had some success on the East Coast. Um, so they brought Jay in, and he had a two-year contract, and, and we started to do a little better better under Jay. But that's why that first three or four years were quite tumultuous. You know, it was a real real drama that uh, that went on. And, you know, we're doing all this, as I said, while we're still working and uh, <laughs> trying to balance that with your family as well. So, yeah, it was a bit of a challenge back in the early days. Not like now, mate. They get everything handed to them on a plate. Uh, I'd love to be able to go down to the stadium and shoot, you know, 500 shots a day. Oh, how good would that be, you know? Go and lift some weights, go and do that. It'd be, it'd be awesome if you could do all that. So what was it like to play under your father and also play with your brother? Yeah, well, look, it was good. I mean, I, my dad had coached me uh, quite a number of different um, teams and stuff like that. Like I said, I was playing at the local uh, state league competition uh, there, where where Dad was coaching at that level as well, um, so I I played under under him quite some time. And under your father, and I'm the same when I coach my team. Um, you're you're one of two things: you're either you favour the hell out of them, or you're harder on them than you are on anybody else. And and certainly Dad was the latter with me. It was harder on me because he expected more of me, and I'm okay with that. I was fine with that. You know, it wasn't uh, uh, a problem. Um, so I had a great relationship with my father, who's certainly my best friend as well as my father, uh, which is a, uh, a luxury that I'm not sure too many people actually have. Um, and, you know, that was something that made it easier for me. So we could discuss things, we could talk things outside of uh, the on-court stuff, you know. Um, and, uh, you know, so that, that wasn't a problem for me. Playing with my brothers, uh, same thing. Uh, you know, we're a great family and we were always a very close family we never fought you know i can honestly say that and i'm not sure too many families could say this we had four boys um growing up we used to you know we'd have our normal fights and carry on and all that but not one of my brothers or i had struck the other guy in a fight at any stage during our entire life now you know often you'll have punch-ups with brothers and stuff like that we never ever had that we would have a few arguments but um, we never, never did that. So we were all very close. So playing with them was just a, a natural progression of that. And funnily enough, we we felt that like Glenn and myself in particular, because he was the the next one down. Uh, we just had this connection, you know. When we were at it, we always knew where each other were on the floor. It was amazing. We always could find each other and get a, you know get the other guy a, a decent shot at it different times. And yeah, it just worked really well. It was fantastic. I really enjoyed playing. With so, Perth Wildcats MVP award has been named in your father's honour, the Gordon Ellis Medal. What does what does that mean to you to have to have that medal named in your father's honour? Yeah, it's it's a huge honour. It really is. Um, that was Bob Williams instigated that uh, in '87. That was the year my father passed away, um, and he instigated uh, right at the start, and it's stayed. and And I'm very honoured that the club to this day continue to do that because often they'll change things around you know they'll make changes oh well, let's change this or let's do this they haven't done that they've honored the fact that you know dad was a, a, a huge part of the inception of the wildcats and and they're you know embracing that history and keeping his name alive by the mvp award and uh every year my mother um and i go in to the awards night and we present that award um to whomever it is that has the privilege of winning it. And, uh, you know, that is a great honour. It's a big part of, uh, of our year, and I know it's a massive 
massive thing for my mum, um, and she really appreciates it. You know, the fact that Jack Bendad has continued with it, not changed it, she's very appreciative of that. One of the big challenges we're all facing at the moment is looking for something to do, trying to find some form of entertainment. Well, here on Amato's Fifth Quarter, I've got you covered because I've had a range of over 20 different interviews with multiple sports players. And uh, one of those who I had last week was Chris McDermott, who is an SANFL legend and also the inaugural captain of the Adelaide Crows. Spoke about a range of different issues from the SANFL and his time at the Adelaide Crows, including when Malcolm Blight came into the club at the start of the 1997 season and Chris McDermott was one of the four major players who were delisted. Uh, here's a little snippet of that to, to get you in the mood. No, I probably can't explain it. Um, it. It was a really unique one and I know you know, the four blokes that you mentioned all had similar feelings. Um, so, you know, it was hard to have that because there was still a bit of disappointment and, you know, no doubt a bit of anger at not being there. I'm coaching North Adelaide. We're in the finals. So I, I didn't even... I didn't didn't watch the game. I, you know, um, I've seen bits and pieces of it, but, um, no, I didn't, didn't watch it. Um, so, yeah, I was really mixed emotions. And again, at that stage, I didn't feel part of the footy club it was a you know again times are different 25 years ago um so no there wasn't really that i was happy that for individually for the players you know i still had a good relationship with quite a lot of the players a good friendship with a lot of them um you know my feelings for the club at that stage were a little strained Chris McDermott is one of the most humble men i've ever come across so friendly so genuine and just a, a really nice bloke to, to, to have a chat with. So uh, definitely check out the full episode during this crazy lockdown period. But for now, let's get back to Perth Wildcats inaugural captain, Mike Ellis. And 1987 um, was the year where everything changed for the Wildcats. So Bob Williams is one of the key people responsible for the incredible rise of the club, the year most look on as the foundation of what is now an empire of an organisation Firstly, the team moved from Perry Lakes to the Perth Superdrome, which has a capacity of around 5,000. Cal Bruton comes in as the player coach and implements that famously spoken about run, stun and have some fun style of play. And he brought players in like Tiny Pinder and James Crawford, the Alabama Slammer, who would end up being championship winners and, and legends of the club. Alan Black also comes in, Eric Watterson, Trevor Torrance as well. Can you explain that off-season from 86 to 87 and the changes that took place within the club at that time? Yeah, very much so. It was a whirlwind. It really was because '86, we uh, I think we finished 50%. Uh, we were about a game or so out of the playoffs, uh, so pretty close. But Bob Williams at that stage was a sponsor of the club, uh, and it's a bit like the old Remington man. And I, you're probably too young to remember that, but it was uh, the Remington man was like he liked the company so much he bought it, you know. And, and that's basically what what um, Bob did. He got involved in sport, loved it, really loved what we were doing. You know, was disappointed we hadn't made the playoffs and all that. But he looked at buying the club because at that stage, the club was still run by Basketball WA. Now, you know, they didn't have the funding to put into it uh, what they needed to put into it. And, you know, they understood that. Uh, for us to go forward, they needed some money. So that's where Bob came in. I uh, sat down with Bob and spent a number of hours 
talking about what we needed to do because he, he came to me and said, what, what do we need to do to make this club successful? I said, well, you need to get your checkbook out. That's the first thing, mate. So <laughs> we need to get some um, some decent players here. I mean, we had some great players, but we didn't have the players of that next. We were always getting imports that were just kind of okay. Um, we had the Australian talent. We had the local talent. But we didn't have those players, like you said, the Crawfords and the um, the, the Penders and the Brutons and these sorts of guys. You know, you just didn't have that. So I said, that's that's what you need to do. We need to really, you know, get some decent players over here, um, and then that will help us, you know, catapult us to the playoffs and all that. Anyway, so Bob had bought the company. He went out, went around, and did that, uh, and went out and like spoke to Cal Bruton. Um, Got Cal involved once Cal got in, and Cal's the consummate showman, right? Absolute uh, salesman of the uh, highest order. And along with Cal came, they ended up then signing, you know, JC. They signed a Tiny. You know, like I said, we we already had Alan Black here. Trevor Torrance was here. Uh, we bought over uh, Steve Davis was here. You know, so like I said, we had that core group of Australians, which were great. We just needed to get those extra guys, and then. By him bringing those imports in, um, that was fantastic. And I remember um, they took us down to the Superdrome and they uh, brought us in and said, this is where we're going to play. And uh, excuse me, um, I looked around and said, how the hell are we going to fill this place? This is, <laughs> this is ridiculous. Um, and I remember the first game, um, it was sold out and it was unbelievable. It was just amazing. So that that 1987 season, as we said, is just instant success for the Wildcats. You make the finals for that first time, and still to this day, the club has not missed the finals since 35 years later. You beat the Cannons and the 36s in the two finals, and you make the grand final series, but you lose to the Brisbane Bullets, who, of course, were a great team led by Brian Kerr and, and had Leroy Loggins there, who was you know arguably the, the greatest import to ever play here in the NBL. Why do you think you weren't able to get it done and what's the feeling like of particularly losing game one by by one point yeah look that you know, and and look there's some stuff we need to talk about briefly on the, how that um 87 season started and continued because there's some really poignant stuff in that which i'll talk about that in a second but to answer your question um yeah, we had a great season. Uh, we're still up and down a little bit. We didn't, you know, we certainly didn't finish top of the league. We finished, you know, um, middle of the range. About I think about fourth somewhere around there. Um, and then we got to and we beat, you know, a highly ranked, uh, as you say, Cannons team. We got to the grand final, and I think we thought we were pretty good. I thought I think we thought we were in pretty good shape because we'd lost one game here by a point, and it was like, oh man, really? We thought we had that, and then we went over there. And I was pretty confident that we could get it done. We could win both games over there. We got our butts handed to us in the second game. Um, you know, they just uh, they just really played very, very well and, and kicked our butt, and uh, we just didn't win it. But the one thing I do remember is sitting in the locker room after that game, because that was played at Boondle, right? Which is, for those that don't know, Boondle was about a good 30, 40 minutes outside of Brisbane, and it held like 13,500 people. Um, so it was a, a huge venue. But I remember sitting in the locker room and, after the game. And there's actually a picture from the newspaper that I remember seeing. Um, 
and it's a picture of my brother Glenn sitting there on the floor, head and arms in his knees, you know, just totally devastated that we'd lost this grand final. And that epitomized what we were all feeling. We just had this horrible, horrible feeling that, you know, we just let something get away. And I remember at the time promising to myself that if we ever made another grand final, I was never going to feel that again. We're never going to lose that again because that was the worst feeling you could ever have. You know, it was just horrible to, to feel like that. So, you know, all that did was, you know, fuel the fire to say, we need to win this now. We need to get, we need to get back and get a win and, and win a championship, which still took a few more years to get there, but we eventually got there. Start of the season, so look, you know, with, along with Cal came, you know, the run and start and have some fun and all that sort of stuff. And there was a huge amount of hype. And, you know, I knew that basketball had started to arrive uh, because it was starting to get some real, um, real uh, impetus around the, the stadium, around the sport, around the spectators, the fans, the sponsors, all that sort of stuff. It all started to come on. TV was stay. We're getting to get the games on TV, all that sort of stuff. Um, but it took a huge amount of work, and a lot of people don't know the amount of work that went into that. We were out at shopping centres and schools and all that sort of stuff. We were out touting ourselves for many, many months before the season started. We were out playing um, country teams where, or country venues where uh, we would go and play intra-club games out there because we had to promote what we were and who we were because people didn't know at that stage. It was only basketballers. We needed to get... More than just basketball is involved. We needed to get the public involved. So we did that. You know, we went out and did that. And I remember just before the season started, uh, we went down and played an intra-club game down in Mandra. And on the drive home, I was in the car with my father and my brothers. And, and I remember my father saying to me, he said, look, I'm so looking forward to this season. Because he said, it's going to be the first season that I can tell that you guys, you know, are going to be successful. He said, you guys have done all the hard work, you've put in all the hard yards and, you know, done all this time as an apprenticeship to get to a point now where now you can actually be successful. You look at this group of players and think, yep, we've got a chance to win this thing. We can go for it, you know. And he said, I'm really looking forward to this season. That was on the Saturday. Uh, on the Sunday, the next day, he passed away. So he never got the opportunity to see us actually um, be successful. You know, and it's it's something that I regret clearly the fact, obviously, that he passed, but the fact that he never got a chance to see us survive. Now, he passed away, it was a week before I got married and two weeks before the season started. So, you know, his timing was pretty poor. Um, you know, I've always said to him, you know, to him, mate, you're just very, very poor timing, buddy. You couldn't have done that better. So, you know, that was the start of our season. So we, we actually, um, we uh, dedicated the season to that. So that's what I'm saying. In that locker room, that picture of Glenn and how we were all feeling, it was deeper for both of us because we dedicated the season to my father or our father. And that's why it was it was just such a devastating moment to, to not actually get that win and, and be in that locker room at that time. So yeah, it was, that's why I'm saying it was quite a poignant thing. It was a, it was a very, very tough season for us, um, my brother and I. Uh, to go through that, but we wanted to do it for Dad, um, and we didn't quite get there. That's why we we made a pact that we were going to do it from then on. We were going to make sure we got it done at some stage.
is that something that you still look on with with a lot of disappointment that you, you weren't able to win that eighty seven championship? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. First one. I mean, you know, it was our, it was our first time of making playoffs for most of us. You know, so to get to the grand final in itself was was fantastic. Um, but at that point, I don't think we'd learnt to win properly. You know, we hadn't learnt what it took to win. Um, and, and I think that was the difference. But by losing, you know, you can say you lost and you do all that, but you still learn things from when you lose. And if you don't learn, learn from losing, then what's the point of losing? So, you know, you, you've got to learn those things. And I think that was something that we did. We learned what it took to, to get through and get a win. And I think that's something that, you know, if you look at the legacy of the World Cup now, they know how to win. You know, it's something that they have learned over many, many years and they've continued to do and, and continue to get better at. I mean, that's why it's been, what, 35 years that they've made playoffs because they just, the expectation is to win. It's not to go in and be part of the numbers, you know. We're not there to make up numbers. We're there to win it. And that's the attitude that you have to go in with every single time. And that's certainly what we, we learned from that 87 loss. So after the 87 loss, the next two seasons, you're still sort of around the mark, but you're not quite good enough to get it done in the finals and you lose to the Giants in the semifinals on both occasions. But 1989, you had the the tragic death of Scott Fenton and his fiancée, Tina, who were killed in a horrific car accident. If you're okay to talk about it, how, how did a tragedy like that impact you as captain of the club and how did the club deal with that tragedy? Yeah, that was that was absolutely devastating, as you can imagine. Eighty nine, we got Scott over. Um, Tina, his fiance, was playing for what was the Breakers then, which was the female version of the Wildcats. They were playing in the uh, WNBL, um, so she was playing for them. Um, and Scotty was just a, such a great guy. I mean, we'd played against him before we played with Sydney and, and that, and we, we knew him there. Really, really great guy. Great family. His mother and father were just fabulous people as well. Um, and Alan Black was coaching at the time and I remember um, getting a phone call at about 5 o'clock in the morning uh, and I'm like, what the hell's going on here? Why is Blackie calling me at 5 in the morning? So I answered the call and of course he gave me the news and the news was just, you know, I, I kind of, you know how you, you kind of see in the movies where people get a phone call and they sit there and they just don't say anything for a minute and they just kind of... Yeah, you're just in sort shock. Of, yeah, you are. You're in shock. You're just sort of absorbing it, going, is this real? Am I dreaming? What's happening here? But yeah, it was it was just horrible. So we went into crisis mode immediately, obviously. You know, we, were, uh, we were in the middle of the season. We were you know, looking to play, trying to prepare, do all that. So we had to try and get all the players together and, you know, find out what had happened so we could then explain to the players what was going on and, and what we were going to do from there. Um, it was just, a, you know, everybody was in shock, absolute shock. You know, it was something that you could never understand. Um, the irony of it is, is that where I currently live, and I have been there for many, many years now, um, where Scott and Tina were killed is, you know, probably five or six hundred metres up the road on the main street uh, near where we live. So I know the area quite intimately. Um, so, yeah, it's, uh, it's a bit horrible. But during that season, what we did is once we got, you know, head around what had happened, 
because we're still playing at uh, Challenge Stadium or what is, was then called the Superdrome, uh, we had a big memorial there. So we had a huge memorial there. And I still remember uh, we had these massive photos of Scott and Tina up on the side and we had the coffins up there. And yeah, it, it's very vivid in my mind that that ceremony was just, you know, a mid-season ceremony to farewell, you know, one of your good mates, one of your, uh, you know, your friends, um, and one of your teammates. And, you know, it was it was really hard. It was it really affected the team for, for probably, I don't know, three or four weeks um, before we could kind of get ourselves back on track again. Um, but yeah, you know, to, to lose someone like that as well in what was just a, you know, it was a, it was, it wasn't a car accident because this guy that did it, he was dragging another guy. There were two guys dragging at night. You know, Scott was out working um, and he was leaving a, a meeting that he had uh, with his wife. They went out and these guys were dragging at night um, down the road without the headlights on. So they came around this corner. Scott pulled out, didn't even, couldn't even see him because they didn't have the headlights on and they just cleaned him up. So it wasn't an accident. It was a, you know, a car crash. There's a big difference. Um, so yeah, it, it was devastating. Very, very tough for all of us, you know. Uh, and then for years after that, whenever we went to Sydney, Scott's mum and dad would come and watch us play and we'd always go and see him after the game and spend a bit of time with them. And, uh, you know, it really, it really solidified that bond that we had with them because they were part of our family. And to lose them like that was devastating. It's a beautiful gesture by the Perth Wildcats to retire his jersey. That's something that, of course, you can always remember him by in terms of the club. Yeah, absolutely. He still hangs up in the, in the uh, RAC arena. Um, and it is a constant reminder of, of uh, a fallen friend, you know. Um, it's, it's not like, you know, I, I can't compare it to people that die in wars and things like that because it's, you know, you can't compare that. They don't, it's not that sort of sacrifice that those sorts of people have made. But he's still part of your family and your group and your team and your club and all that. And, uh, you know, it's great that they honoured him that way and, and he's still up there today. And it speaks volumes of, of you guys as an organisation to be able to to come from what was just such a, a horrific time to, to win a championship the next year. I'm sure you dedicated that 1990 championship to Scott Fenton and Tina. The clocks strike zero and the Perth Wildcats are the 1990 Hungry Jacks National Basketball League champions by a margin of 23 points. 109 to 86. It's been a marvellous year of basketball. And I would say a fitting three-game series to end it on, Peter. The 1990 Hungry Jacks NBL champions, the Perth Wildcats, I'll call up firstly their captain and inspirational leader, Mike Ellis. Um, I'd like to firstly thank the 11th man for the uh, Brisbane Bullets. Everyone out there, it was a hell of an effort. He gave us a hell of a fright on Friday night. But I think it's a credit to the team, the way we've come back. We worked damn hard for this. And as far as I'm concerned, the players that deserve 100% of the credit have done a fantastic job. And I'd like to thank every one of them. Thank you. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it was, uh, it was a tough one because that year there was also plane strikes. The year Scotty died, there was also plane strikes. We traveled around on Scotty Hercules planes and stuff like that, like eight hours to fight in Adelaide and stuff like that. So that was a fun season all around. Um, 
but 90 was definitely uh, definitely dedicated to a number of different people. So there was Scotty, you know, sort of in the back of my mind. There was uh, there was my father. Um, you know, 90 was a fairly tumultuous year too. Um, so to win it under the circumstances that we won it, um, again, was probably a credit to, to what we did as an organisation to be able to do that. So you mentioned 1990 wasn't without its challenges and the first, I believe it's the first two games of the season are under Alan Black and then Cal Bruton, who was originally the general manager, takes over as coach. Could you maybe explain some of the issues that may have happened early in that 1990 season from a captain's point of view? Yeah, so, I mean, in in 89, uh, we lost the third game of a three-game series against uh, North Melbourne, as you mentioned earlier, and we lost that last game by 55 points. How the hell you lose a game three of a three-game series where you're one all by 55 is beyond me, but we lost by 55, and Cal Bruton played in number 55. So he decided that that, that was his time to hang up the boots. <laughs> he decided the to irony. play because, yeah, yeah, the irony was there. Um, so he he left as a player and became the general manager. <clears throat> so Alan took over as coach, or he was, that's not true, he was already coach. So I think, I think Cal played in 88 and 89 just as a player and Alan coached. Uh, so uh, Cal retired as a player and decided to go into the general manager side of things. So that was pretty disappointing. We lost that. In the start of eighty, uh, start of 90, we were on the road. I think we played two games. We won one. We lost one. We came back. We lost a game. Hilda that we should never have lost. But we did. Uh, it was just one of, the, one of those games. Uh, we came back. And uh, during the week, uh, there was a meeting that was held. And we were bought, all bought in. And we were told that... Um, and as we came in, Alan wasn't there. I'm like, what's going on? And uh, Cal came in, and or Kerry Stokes came in and said, uh, just letting you know that Alan's been relieved as coach and Cal will be taking over. Now, we had no idea of this. We had we didn't know what was going on. Um, as a playing group, we got together and we talked about it, and none of us actually agreed with the move as a group. Um, we didn't agree with uh, why this was happening. You know, what's, what's going on? So we were... We went back to Stokesy, you know, and said, hey, what's happened? We don't agree with this. What, what's going on? Why is this happening? He basically said, look, the deal's been done. The decision has been made. You either live with it or you can leave. Simple as that. Okay, so, you know, all of us at that stage thought, well, you didn't necessarily want to give up our NBL career. We thought Alan as best we could. But, you know, our hands, you know, it's not like you could go out on strike. Although we had contemplated that. Really? My brother Glenn, yeah, my brother Glenn at the time was assistant coach to Alan. Uh, Andre Kavanagh was the manager, um, and both of them they said, "Oh, we're going to resign uh, on principle." So they walked out as well um, for it. See, the thing is, um, Glenn had stopped playing as a player uh, in '87 because you know '87 wasn't a great year for us. Um, at the end of 87, after the season had finished, um, Glenn had a really bad um, skiing, water skiing accident, which I can tell you about later on time, but really bad skiing accident. So it actually ended his playing career. 
So he was then assistant coach. So he came on board as an assistant coach with Alan a bit later on. So he walked out, Andre walked out um, in, in uh, protest, I guess. And uh, then, then Cal took over as coach. And yeah, it took a bit because a lot of the players weren't happy with it. Uh, you know, they weren't happy with the decision. But, you know, we were professional athletes. We had to deal with what it was and we, we kind of dealt with it. So the season was kind of a little up and down. We got to... The playoffs, we finished in fifth position, which nobody gave us a snowball's chance in hell of winning it from there. Um, but we ended up uh, winning, the, I think, the quarters against Adelaide, which was a great win. And then we played North Melbourne in the semi. Now, the history is that we'd lost 89 and, sorry, 88 and 89 against North Melbourne in the semi-finals, and here we are playing them again. So, you know, people are going, oh, God, here we go. And we're thinking they're our hoodoo team and all that sort of stuff. And we ended up beating them in a three-game series. And I think game three was slow the time. Um, and that was just an absolute phenomenal, phenomenal series to win that. So to win that, we then got into the grand final. And lo and behold, we're playing Brisbane again. Brisbane had home court advantage. And we're playing Brisbane in Brisbane at Boondle Stadium again. So, thoughts straight back to 87. <laughs> Here we are again. We're going to do the same thing again. So, we uh, we won the first game in Perth. Went over to play game two over there and thought, well, you know, in 87 we lost the first game in Perth, so we're laughing now. We got this. Went over, played game two there and out of Boondle. And at that time, we set the indoor record for attendance at a sporting event, um, and they had uh, nearly 14,000 people there. Uh, it was unbelievable. It was just, uh, and that was only because that was the largest stadium that was in Australia at that time. And uh, it was just chock a block. It was unbelievable. The amount of people there it was it was just fantastic. Um, the problem was that we were looking at all that going, how good is this? We're going to win this game, and we got our butts handed to us um, again. So Brisbane beat us by about, I think it was about 23 points or something like that. And we had 36 hours to turn it around to play game three. And that was that was pretty impressive. So, uh, you know, we had a, a very, shall we say, interesting conversation with Kerry Stokes after the game. Um, <laughs> that was an interesting one. And then we had to then focus ourselves um, for game three. Uh, and then we went did that as a playing group. Um, I got everybody together as captain. I kind of got everyone together and said, right, we need to excuse me, work out how we're going to win this. And we did that. We, we put ourselves a, a plan together and we implemented that plan and, uh, you know, the rest of history was like that. Referee says, fellas, take a break. It's half time. Hey, everyone. I just want to say a very big thank you to those who have engaged with A5Q. I really do appreciate all the support. I trust you're enjoying delving into all things Australian sport and hopefully you will continue to stick around. It would be a massive help if you could please do me a solid, subscribe to the podcast and hit me up with a rating and a review. Gaining as much positive feedback as possible helps boost my visibility and it allows the podcast to be seen by other Australian sports tragics out there. Now enough of that, let's get back into it because the second half of A5Q is about to get underway. 
So what is the feeling like when you know you're forever scripted in NBL history as a as an NBL champion? It was it was huge. The emotion for me was massive because it was it was nine years in the making <laughs> for me. You know, we started in eighty two. Got our, you know, didn't have much success in the early days. Then we started to have some success. Got to a grand final, lost that. Then didn't quite make the grand final. Then just finally get there again. You know, I was going to do whatever, whatever it took to win that thing. You know, um, it was just at that point where it was just pure desperation. And I think the rest of the guys were in the same boat. But when that siren went, what what we basically did, part of our plan was that we, we agreed as a group, just a playing group, we got together as a playing group, and we agreed that we were going to break the whole game down to possessions, uh, each possession. Good possession of the offensive end, good possession of the defensive end. And the pact was that we weren't going to look at the scoreboard, you know, only for the time and stuff like that, uh, shot clocks, but we weren't going to look at the score. Um because we wanted to make sure that we just looked after what we needed to do and the score would take care of itself. We did that, and I remember getting subbed out with about five minutes left in the game. And it was at that time that I decided, well, I'm going to have a bit of a look at this scoreboard now, because you could get a feel with the game, the, game, the way the game was going anyway. You, you, know, you had a, a feel without looking at it. And at that stage, we are about 20-odd 20, 20 points up. No, 20, yeah, about 20-odd 20 points up. And I knew at that point we had the game. We had the grand final, and that was just this overwhelming sense of relief and elation, I think, at that point. So, yeah, it was, it was pretty special. And then when that final final went, uh, it, was, it was amazing. Uh, and then, yeah, to bring up as captain and, and get presented the trophy. That famous and shot of you with it over your head. I know, I know. I, I don't know what happened. I just thought when I picked it up, I mean, I'd never done that stuff before. I'd never accepted a trophy like that before. And I thought, well, you know, you see other people lift it up above their head. So I thought I'd do that. But I just forgot how big that bloody trophy was. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if my back's ever been the same. Since, but That's awesome. Hard, so it was, uh, it was pretty easy to do. So I just, uh, yeah, lifted it up above my head. And, uh, you know, it was, uh, you know, it was just something that, uh, I'll never forget, that's for sure. So, just one more on 1990. Now, as we mentioned, there were a few off-court issues. It wasn't all glamour rings and trophies. I did read an article about Tiny Pinder having a few off-court issues, and, and you said that there was a game in 1990 where the police actually came in the rooms at halftime to try and arrest him. If if you're okay to talk about it, is that is that a true story? And um, how did that unfold? Yeah, it's absolutely a true story. Absolutely a true story. Um, Tiny was having some, some issues um, that we kind of weren't aware of at the time. Um, and then at half time, uh, one of the games, in the playoff series, um, they came in. We were playing at the Entertainment Centre at that point. So that was the first year we started at the Entertainment Centre. You know? So we went from Challenge Stadium or the Superdrome to the entertainment centre, which again held 8,500 people, which again, first time I went there, I went, how are we going to fill this? And of course we did, and continued to all season. Um, but at half time we came in and the game was pretty tight. And, uh, and you know, you go in expecting to have your, uh, you know, the coach talk to you about, you know, strategies and all that. And there was uh, police in the locker room. And they basically 
grabbed Tiny as he walked in and handcuffed him and read him his rights and said all this. And where you can imagine as a playing group in a, a playoff series, to have one of your key players have that happen to him at half time. Kind of a little unnerving, to say the least. Well, that was for us. Can you imagine what it would be like for him? Anyway, after some conversations, they actually allowed him to play the second half, which is kind of a bit unusual. We're like, guys, you could have waited till the end of the game for the rest of the game. It's not like he's running away anywhere, you know. Anyway, they, I'm sure it wouldn't happen now, but at the time, they allowed him to play the second half. So they took the clock off him. They had, you know, they had people around all the exits and all that. In case, you know, we were kind of wondering if uh, one of the balls had gone bouncing off court down the road, whether Tiny would have chased it and then run off down Wellington Street. <laughs> but they had had police uh, around all the exits, you know, just to make sure, just in case. Um, and he came out and played the second half with us. Now, not only did he play the second half, he came out and I think in the second half he had something like, I don't know, 18, 15, you know, 18 points, 15 boards in the second half. I'm like, how the hell do you do that with that stuff hanging over your head? Um, so that was, you know, freaky in itself that he was able to produce like that. Um, but then after the game, they took him away and then we later found out uh, that he's been charged with various uh, things that, you know, um, their kind of history now. But, yeah, that was that was kind of what had happened. And, you know, to, to say that was a little unnerving would be a fair understatement, I would think. How did you guys go about playing with him after that? The second half, how did you play with him knowing that this stuff was going on? Like, did that impact the way you played at all? <clears throat> Or was, did you have to just um, block it out? This is our teammate. We just got to carry on. Yeah, we we just had to block it out. I mean, clearly it's in the back of your mind. You you know you're constantly thinking what 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 is that about? Because we had no idea. We had no idea about any of that. Um, it was the first time we'd seen anything uh, like that. The first time we'd heard anything um, relating to Tiny. So we had no idea what it was for. Why it was? You know, we didn't know what the charges were. We didn't know any of that. So all we know is he'd been arrested. So it could have been for anything. So as players, we kind of rallied around him and said, all right, let's, let's just focus on this for the time being. Let's deal with that afterwards. Let's deal with this. Let's, let's take care of business here, and then we'll take care of that business afterwards. So he got a huge amount of support in actual fact. And uh, we came out. And I, I think, you know what I think it did? It actually bonded us closer. It really did as a group, and it galvanised us um, and we went out and we, we played really well and, and Tiny was ridiculous in it. Then after the game, then we found out a little bit more detail. The following day, we had a team meeting and Terry came in and explained what was going on and what had happened and uh, all that sort of stuff. You know, said that they were going to fight it, blah, blah, blah. We had to continue with the rest of the series and all that, which we did and Tiny was able to play because he got charged, but then he was able to continue on because the court hearing wasn't until a later date. Uh, so we, we finished the season um, with it uh, and won that. But then after that, then he went on and, and uh, he got found guilty of various things and was charged and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, that was very disappointing from our perspective. Um, you know, Tiny was a great bloke, a great teammate and all that sort of stuff. Um, but, you know, you can never condone what he got found guilty of or what he was doing. 
Um, and you know that was that was very disappointing, and it was a very different side of him that you know we didn't really know about. Um, and you know that I guess that's human human life, mate. You don't know what everybody's like at every minute of the of the day uh, in what they do and how they do things. So you know it was disappointing that uh, he did that. Obviously, uh, as I said, we don't condone any of what he did, but that doesn't change what he did on the basketball court for us and was part of our, our team at that stage. Did that change your relationship with Tiny Pinder? Yeah, it did a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. It was difficult. It was difficult because I, Tiny was the sort of guy that I knew if I ever got in a blue on the court, if I got in a fight, Tiny would be the first guy there to help me. He would always have your back. He'd always have that. As a teammate, he was a great guy. The stuff he did off court, that's a very different scenario. And, um, you know, that was that was very disappointing to find out that that was going on. Um, and, yeah, that, that made it very, very, very tough. And I, I actually felt sorry for it. The problem was, the biggest thing that, um, I, I suppose, my takeaway out of all that was that Tiny had a problem and he, he didn't realise that he had a problem or he couldn't admit that he had a problem. And, um, you know, and then he wasn't able to get help for it. Um, that's probably the, the difficulty if he... He had been able to admit that there was an issue there. He may have been able to get help for that issue, and that might have helped him and helped many other people that were part of that whole process. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, look, we we, we can move on now to to 1991 because at the end of 1990, Cal Bruton is moved on, and Murray Arnold, who was formerly an assistant coach with the Chicago Bulls, takes over. There seems to be a lot of issues going on with Cal Bruton at the club, even though the season was so successful on the court with the championship. What was your take on what happened there with Cal Bruton and then Murray Arnold coming in again as a captain's point of view? Probably the biggest the biggest mistake that Cal made was that um, he he challenged Terry Stokes, and Terry Stokes is not a guy to be messed with. Um, <laughs> He's a very, very powerful man and he knows what he wants to do and, and the way in which he wants to do it. Cal took over as coach. Um, Cal, Cal wanted to be, he wanted to be the general manager and the coach. And, uh, you know, I think there was a, a great interview um, after the grand final where uh, uh, someone spoke to Cal after the grand final, one of the journos, and said, well, oh, look, you know, what are you looking forward to in the off-season and all that? And, I think he said, I'm looking forward to playing hardball with Kerry Stokes. Um, that may have been a mistake. <laughs> so I think Cal wanted to... Uh, and look, I wasn't uh, privy to the back back office conversations between Kerry and Cal and how all that worked. Uh, but the, the little that I do know was that Cal wanted to do both. He wanted to be the general manager and the coach. And Kerry's view was that um, he wanted him to be the general manager necessarily wanted to be the coach. Um, he said, you certainly can't do both. You can do one, but not the other. And I think Cal was like, no, no I'm doing both or I'm doing nothing. And I think he called Kerry's bluff. And Kerry said, what? That's fine. You're gone. See you later. Um, so, so Cal left and then uh, they got Murray Arnold as, as the coach. Now, that was an interesting one in itself, um, getting Murray in. Um, great credentialed coach. Um, certainly knew his stuff and all that, but you've gone from the consummate uh, entertainer in Cal Bruton to a guy that was dead from the neck up, basically, 
Um, really? So, oh yeah, oh yeah, unbelievable. But not only that, just his style of play was the same. So we went from running, starting to have some fun and, you know, up-tempo style of play where we we won it and we averaged close to 100 points a season and all that sort of stuff. And then in 91, under Murray, I think we we won it. That said, Daniel, you could have coached us to a championship in 91. We were that good. We were that good. Four games for the entire season, right? So, but we changed the way we played. He changed the way we played. And we averaged something like about 70 points a game. It wasn't that much fun to watch. <laughs> Do you, or play, for that matter. Does that mean you, you didn't necessarily like Murray Arnold's coaching style? No, not at all. I mean, the one thing Murray did do was he brought a level of defense to our club that we hadn't had before. And you've got to take your hat off to him for that. There was no question about that. What he brought defensively was fantastic. But he also brought a slowdown, um, boring as batshit type of style as well. So it was all about the defense. Um, we're going to stop them at every cost and you know, we'll score enough points to win because we had the the, the squad to do it, you know. Um, but he just held the reins on us the whole time. And I think we, we beat Eastside Spectres in the grand final series that season in 91. And I think the final score in game three was like 82 to 78 or 76 or something like that. You know, it was just, and that was a high scoring one for us. So, yeah, it wasn't it wasn't that great entertainment style of play, and uh, it, it became a very dour, slow down, yeah, boring, boring style. Pretty much sums up Murray's personality, I think. That is so interesting, and I didn't expect that sort of an answer. But so, 1991, you were the minor premiers. You went 22-4, and then of course you win the championship against Brian Gorgian's Spectres. Pickles back there. Well done, Tony Pinder. He's got an eye on the clock. He's got a smile on the face. The arms are in the air. The Wildcats have done it. The Wildcats are champions. The team which won the regular season by five games deservedly have gone on to win the championship. And the Perth Entertainment Centre erupts to announce champions for the second year in a row. Murray Arnold must be delighted. He was on a hiding to nothing this year. They were champions last year under Calvin Bruton. Arnold accepted the job from Western Kentucky. And if anything, they've been a better side, a deeper side this year. Now, Mike Ellis is standing by. Well, Mike, um, I have to ask the obvious question. How does it feel the second time around? Unbelievable. It's, it's just as good as the, sec as the first time, no question. After that first game in Melbourne where you won by 26, everyone was expecting it to, to really coast home, but it's turned into a wonderful series, hasn't it? It has, yeah. I mean, Eastside are a great team. They played a great series. You know, we shocked them the first game in Melbourne. We knew the second one was going to be tough. They proved what a good team they are. And I think we proved that we're just as good a team, so it's good. Was there, was there pressure or nerves of playing at home, the expectation on you? Oh, there's always pressure there, you know. It was easier to play away, I think, half the time. But I think we're a mature enough team that we handled it fairly well and we came back strong. Okay, Michael, go and enjoy. Thank you. Thank you, Dennis. The 1991 season, the way you're talking, it doesn't seem like you look at it overly fondly. I certainly don't look at it with the same fondness as the, the championship, the, the, uh, the first one. The first one, like anything you do, mate, your first is always your best. 
<laughs> winning a championship, the, the thing that we wanted to do in 91 was to win the championship at home because in 90 we won it away and we wanted to bring it home to Perth and win the championship in front of our home crowd, which is what we did. So that, from that perspective, it was exciting, it was fantastic, and it was great. And don't get me wrong, mate, you win a championship, you know, there's no greater feeling than winning a championship. But, you know, it, it was under a little bit of um, difficulty, I guess. It was just a different style and a different way in which we played and a different, different uh, coaching style. So, so yeah, it, it was different. It was different, you know. It, but it was still a championship. And it was still one that was won. So, you know, I, I still still hold that fondly, don't get me wrong. But it was just, yeah, I'd say it was different is probably the easiest way to explain it. So the year after 1992, that's your final season in the NBL. And, and unfortunately, you're, you're unable to, to do the three-peat. Was, was that always going to be your last season? Nope, not even close. So this gets back to our friend Mr. Arnold again. <laughs> 92... We had the team to win it. We could have three-peated. I have no doubt whatsoever in my mind that we could have three-peated. But Murray, in his infinite wisdom, decided that what he wanted to do was he wanted to promote younger players coming through. And I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. Um, You know, you need to future-proof your club. You need to make sure you've got your young kids and you're developing your young kids and all that sort of stuff. My argument was always... I'm okay with giving up my position to somebody else if they take it from, but don't give it to them. And that's what I found was happening. He was giving younger guys my time, my court time, and a a couple of other guys court time. Uh, For some reason, I don't know what it was, but Murray had this thing in his head about me. He didn't want me to um, be there. We actually had a... um, There was a, a bit of media stuff where... I got misquoted in the paper, um, which, you know, fueled a bit of fire. Uh, okay. Not like a journalist to, uh, you know, sensationalise a story, but, you know, he did. Uh, so I ended up having a bit of a public row with, um, with Murray uh, during the course of the season um, about, about the fact that, you know, I wasn't getting court time when I should have been. The guys he's playing in front of me, I felt I could do a better job. You know, um, I still felt that I was able to produce and do that, but he wanted to go that way. The other thing that he did too was he brought in a guy by the name of Vince Hinchin. Now, Vince Hinchin in his day was a fantastic player, absolutely fantastic player. When Murray recruited him, he was no longer that player. He had a chronic back problem. He spoke to someone on the plane on the way over here, unbeknownst to Vince, but the guy he spoke to I knew. And he told me that Vince told him on the plane on the trip over that he said, I can't believe these guys signed me to a non-cut, non-medical test contract for three years. Because he said, my back's absolutely stuffed. I can hardly play. That's unbelievable. I know. So that was great. So they bring him in to do that. He comes in. um, He takes my starting spot. I sit on the bench. As the season goes on, I start to hardly play. We get to the semi-finals um, and we're playing um, Melbourne. And my whole career, I guarded Andrew Gaze because I was the one who always got that short straw. And I know that you know Andrew was is without doubt the best player that this league has ever seen, and certainly the most phenomenal scorer 
but I'd played Andrew for many, many years, and I'd like to think that he used to have a reasonably tough time with me guarding him, right? I'd never never stopped him, but you could try and slow him down a little bit. We lost game two of the semi-final series by two points, and uh, I'd played like two minutes in that game. And I know for a fact that I would have had more than a two-point impact in that game. We had won that, we would have gone on and uh, played in the grand final, and we would have won that, would have three-peated. So to say I was a little pissed would be a fair understatement at that point. And that was the story. And Murray had decided that he wanted to play these other guys and do all that. And uh, that was his decision. You know, I had no say about it. It didn't, didn't mean that I didn't want, you know, I didn't like it or enjoy it. But that's where we were at. And uh, you know, I, I don't know to this day why why that happened, uh, but it did. Is it fair to say that you didn't really like Murray Arnold as a person either? Um. Yeah, that'd be probably a fair reason. I didn't dislike him. I didn't. I what I did dislike is the way he treated us as a team and me as an individual. That's what I did dislike because he didn't do it well. You know, Murray. You know, lost his soul. He passed on to, uh, now, and I don't want to speak ill of the dead, but um, you know that was just the way it was. We didn't get on for whatever reason. You know, I don't know too many people that I have ever clashed with, but for some reason. Him and I didn't get on all that well. So it was what it was. I went to management at the end of the season and said, is Murray going to be coaching again next year? And they told me he was. I said, well, then I'm going to retire because I don't want to be the guy that sits on the end of the bench. Captain sits on the end of the bench. That player that hangs on too long. You know, if that's the case, I would rather step off and let the young guys play and let them get that experience. Um, you know, so, and I certainly didn't want to be a guy that sat, sat there that believed he could still contribute and not be able to, because it would just be way too frustrating for me. So I decided to hang up the boots and I retired. We had a big, you know, before I retired, all that sort of stuff. And then about a month later after the season, Murray got sacked and they brought in Adrian Hurley, which, as you can imagine, kind of upset me a little bit, just a little bit. To make it even worse, the, the Wildcats make the grand final that year. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, yeah, and look, I went to Adrian, and Adrian was actually happy to have me back as a player. But management decided that, look, there's been too much upheaval. You know, we've got, you've already retired. We've got, we sacked Murray, blah, blah, blah. We can't now bring you back in and reinstate you. And I said, why not? Anyway, they decided that they didn't want to do that. Um, that wasn't going to happen. So, therefore, I ended up uh, not being part of it anymore. So, I did develop. What I ended up doing was ended up becoming a second assistant to Adrian uh, as a coach. Um, so, I did that a little bit, you know, in, in, within a couple of years. So, yeah, that was, uh, that was how I retired. My view was, personally, I think I still could have played for another couple of years at least and... and I wouldn't want to continue to play if I didn't think I can contribute. I still believe I could have contributed for another couple of years without too much of a problem. But that wasn't, it ended up being not my choice. Well, you mentioned you did come back as an, as an assistant coach. Did that retirement in 92, did that hurt your relationship with the Perth Wildcats? Um, look, it, it, it soured it a little bit. It soured it a little bit. I was very disappointed. But then, you know, um, I was still. You know, they gave me a job. I was still working. I was still in development and all that sort of stuff. Um, 
So, yeah, it, it, it kind of did a little bit. Um, but, you know, I had to look at it and go, all right, well, I've got to take my player's hat off and look at my long-term um, view, uh, which was, well, I still need to work. I still need to do it. If I can still be involved in the club in some way, then I was happy to do that. So I started uh, doing some development. Look, I, I don't know. I've got a feeling that maybe the view was that, look, you know, we'll do some development. Michael will do some development for a while and then, you know, he'll probably just say, look, that's enough. I'm, I'm done. Um, but obviously I did enough to stay around and continue on and I was stayed with the club for another 12 years, um, you know. So I ended up uh, eventually becoming the coach. So, you know, I must have done enough to hang around to, to warrant um, being left there, I guess. And look, as you go through your career and do lots of different things, you know, there's going to be disappointments, there's going to be, you know, elations, there's going to be ups and downs. And, you know, you just got to deal with those as they come. You know, you can't take one small thing and say that that's, that defines you as a person uh, or it defines the club. You know, it's, it's just a, a part of the whole growth I guess and that's what I ended up having to do I said alright well I'll take it on the chin my playing's done so now I need to concentrate on what I need to do to continue within the sport that I love and that's what I did yeah and you mentioned you you did spend uh, one season as the head coach of the Wildcats in that 2003-04 season um in my opinion, that's one part of your, I guess, career that's not really spoken about all that much. That that season, you finished seventh with a fifteen eighteen record, and you you made well. Of course, you made the playoffs. You lost uh, the first final to the Cairns Taipans. How was that first season as head coach, and why was it you were only in that position for that one season? And for the coach of the Wildcats, Mike Ellis, a three-time club champion. He played 300 games, a rocky start as a coach, but now it's starting to come together for his lineup, and he's getting excited as we head toward the playoffs. Yeah, it is. It's huge, you know, and that's the problem. We've got to make sure that the momentous occasion that's happening out here doesn't take away from the focus, which is the game. You know, I'm trying to insulate the guys from it as much as humanly possible, but uh, it is a very, very big game for us, for both teams, you know. Uh, we get this game, Tigers end up on the same amount of losses as we are, so it, it's very important. They're one up right now. We'd like to tie it up and give us a chance to get the split when we go back to Melbourne. Yeah, well, that, that's an interesting, <laughs> interesting one, to say the least. There's a, fair, there's a fair bit to this one. So... I was assistant coach to Alan Black. We made the grand final that year, the year before, right? I thought Blackie was doing a good job coaching. I'd been an assistant to him for six years, and I enjoyed that role. Um, I enjoyed being involved with the group, you know, doing development with the players, all that sort of stuff. Um, Andrew Vlahoff and Luke Longley owned the team. The problem that they had was that they weren't making much money. We had some issues with TV and various things, so uh, it wasn't at the same level that it was in the late, you know, 90s. Um, so money wasn't quite as uh, prevalent, as you should say. So they were finding that they weren't making the money that they were needed to make, right? So what they wanted to do is they wanted to do some cost-cutting, okay? So... What uh, what they did is they basically um, decided that they wanted to uh, get rid of Alan. Uh, I got told that they were getting rid of Alan. Uh, the following year, they were going to run it on a shoestring at the be as best they possibly could. I was going to be the head coach, possibly. 
if I wanted to take the job. There was no guarantee that I would necessarily um, keep the job on as an assistant coach if they got someone else in. Um, they weren't even sure if they were going to have much of an assistant coach role. So I said, well, okay, so basically you're telling me I really don't have a choice here. So um, so I said, all right, well, okay, well, I'll take it. But at that stage, I was pretty much the only guy that had stood up for Alan and said, I, I don't know why you're getting rid of him. He's done a hell of a job. He's done a great job. But, you know, I still needed to feed my family and I decided, all right, well, I would take on the role. So I took the role on. Now, when I took on that role, I said I want to get um, different people in as assistant coaches. One of them was my brother, who was a very, very good coach in his own right. I was refused that. They, they gave me an assistant coach. The assistant coach they gave me, I didn't want because he'd had a history of... Um, going places and then, uh, you know, that coach being relieved and then him taking over. I'm like, well, I'm not sure I necessarily want to have that guy as an assistant coach, uh, but I did. So they gave me that and they said, no, he's been told there's no way that uh, he will ever get the coaching job. I went, yeah, okay, right, fine. So I did that. Both him and I had to effectively be the managers. So we didn't have a manager on the road. We only took 10 players. If we had an injured player, we couldn't take anyone else. We could only take that player and the player that was injured. When we got to um, other venues, we would have to borrow someone's physio. So effectively, I had one game where Ricky Grace came to me, was up in Townsville, came to me before the game and said, Mike, I can't play. I said, why not? He said, have a look at the tape job I've just been given. And he showed me his ankles that had been taped and he could put two fingers down the inside of his tape on his ankle. So we ripped that off. And so prior to the game, I'm taping up Ricky Grace's ankles for him. And I'm the head coach. Unprofessional. Well, look, it was. I understand that they were trying to run it on a shoestring. They needed to try and save money and do all that sort of stuff. But my issue was, and this is the big thing I said, is I'm okay with you guys running it on a shoestring. But don't judge me at the end of the season on a performance if they haven't given me the tools to perform. The other thing that was there too was that I was given the imports, right? So I had one import that came in who was very average. And early in the season, I said, I want to change the import. There's a guy that I want to import, I want to bring in. He's actually in the country, but I want to bring him over and I think he will be better for us. They refused. They said, no, you've got to stay with the guy you've got. Now, the guy that I tried to get was a guy that was playing down in Hobart by the name of Sean Redditch. Who ended up being an absolute legend. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Was that when you had? Was that the season when you had Ontario let? No, no, no. That was later. That was okay. later. So I had uh, I had a guy by the name of John Jackson, um, who was just really average. So he was the import I wanted to change, but they wouldn't let me. They wouldn't let me bring in Redditch. So you know, Redditch came in. I think two years later, a year or two later, and you know, again, as the cliche says, mate, the rest is history. So I wouldn't have minded getting him in. I think we would have done fairly well with him as well. But that's the way it was, and, and that's how the season went. It was, um, you know, it was tough. It was really tough. It was tough on the players. It was tough on me. You know, like I said, I, I understand that they needed to try and save a bit of money because, you know, we were hemorrhaging money, and, you know, you just can't keep showing, you know, good money after bad. So I, I understand the theory behind it. That, you know, that wasn't the issue. But at the end of the season, when I got hauled over the coals for not actually doing better than what I'd done. And I was like, well, God, come on, really, seriously? And again, they ended up saying, look, we've decided we're going to bring in 
Scott Fisher, who had never coached before. I effectively got sacked, which is, you know, what all coaches eventually just about do. Yeah, so I got I got sacked and they bought Scott Fisher in, like I said, who had never coached before. But, you know, there was there was some stuff that had gone on with, you know, sponsors and employment and things like that. And I think, again, a, a bit of that was to do with uh, money. Not that I was on much. There, but you know, the point is, there is those sorts of factors that come into it. It's not always like sport, it isn't always just about the basketball or the sport itself. There are other factors that come into play, which unfortunately is the case. It's just the you know, human nature and the nature of the beast, so it is what it is. But that's what happened, and that that right there basically ended my career with the Wildcats. So I came to a bit of an abrupt end, which was a bit disappointing. But, you know, I mean, hey, it's all water under the bridge from my perspective now. I um, I kind of didn't get involved with the Wildcats for a number of years after that. We kind of stayed away for a bit. You know, I thought that was fair to give it some space. But after a while, you think about it and you think, well, I had 23 years with the club, a huge part of my life. So, yeah, it, it's difficult to kind of just say that one thing will negate all the other stuff, you know. So... And we're back there and we support them fully and, uh, you know, they've done pretty well. They continue on. Look, guys, th- quick three-quarter time break here on A5Q. I just want to let you all know that in the next couple of weeks, I've got Kevin Lish, who is coming on the show, who is an NBL legend, uh, a 2010 championship player and two-time MVP. I sat down and had a chat with him about his career and his, in his life. Uh, here's a little snippet to get you in the mood. I think there are a lot of emotions because I knew – halfway through that season that I was going to have to essentially medically retire. That was going to be my last game. You, you know, we had some idea it was going to be Bogus' last game. You know, Damian Martin retired from the other end. I think at the end of the day, we had four guys, four or five guys who were international guys who had to get back home. You know, all the boarders were starting to do, do their thing. Not many people knew about this novel thing. So, you know, I think we we felt, you know, pretty at peace with with um, our decision when, you know, it was called off. But then after that, um, to be honest, I was like, I don't even remember where I was when, I think it was, uh, yeah, when the NBL announced that Perth was gonna win. And I really didn't feel anything because at the end of the day, I think we felt at peace that we were taking care of, especially our international guys. Kevin Lish is a lovely guy, so you'll definitely enjoy that episode. But for right now, let's get back to Mike. So did you actually want to continue coaching into that 0405 season? Yeah, I would have been happy to do that. Yeah, definitely. Did that coaching saga affect your relationship with the club? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, you get sacked, you kind of walk away and think, well, geez, I don't want anything to do with those guys anymore. Uh, yeah, so for a, for a few years, I uh, I definitely just didn't have anything to do with them. You know, and, and then I went on and did my own stuff, which I needed to do. So I went, started work in a different scenario. And in actual fact, it was with a, a guy that was a basketballer. He was a coach. He owned a business over here. And he was the one who got me involved in the education business. So I started working for him. And then, yeah, just built on from there. Uh, but then I was still coaching and, and being involved in the local SBL, or which is NBL1 now. So got back involved in that and grassroots and was coaching state teams and juniors and all those sorts of things. So still got heavily involved with all that. 
now you did mention earlier your your brother had a skiing incident and and that was one of the reasons why he didn't play basketball anymore what what was the incident there yeah so we we had a ski boat and he'd been out um, he'd been out uh, basically the whole day on the Saturday he'd been uh, skiing with my other brother and they'd been out water skiing and done all that next day on the Sunday they decided to go back uh, and have another another run I was my with my wife and I we were up in uh, Dongra at the blessing of the fleet because we knew some guys up there that were big cray fishermen so we were up there so we went out with them and then when we got back late Saturday uh, Sunday night there was a note on my door that was uh, from my mother who said uh, Mike ring me no matter what time it is call me urgently don't panic I'm like seriously mum you kidding me <laughs> so uh, anyway I rang her and then I found out at that stage that what had happened was that Glenn was on the skis, the one he was on one ski, so he's a pretty good skier. He'd been skiing along, and then there had some waves. They were down at Deepwater Point. There was a lot of traffic around, a lot of water, a lot of boats. Um, hit a couple of big waves, sort of lost his balance, started to um, fall, and then fell. And if you're a water skier, you know you've got the handle, and then there's a triangle of rope that goes in and then goes to the boat. Well, his head fell in the triangle. Alright, so Jeez. what happened was he was still hanging onto the triangle. He was upside down, and uh, as the boat continued to go, the rope tightened and it just tightened underneath his neck. Uh, it came off and it actually completely severed his ear, so his one ear completely cut off. And then he was being towed underwater, upside down, with the um, triangle and the and the bar, the handlebar under his neck, and he was hanging on. Uh, but he couldn't hang on much longer. And normally when you're water skiing, if someone falls off, you see them fall off, you normally hit the accelerator and speed off and then come back and pick them up. Now, if Brett had done that, he basically would have just about pulled Glenn's head off. Um, the fortunate thing that happened was that uh, a boat had cut across in front of Brett, so he had to release the accelerator all right, or the throttle on the boat. And as he did that, the rope loosened and Glenn was able to just throw it off his neck and as he did then Brett sped off and came back so what happened effectively was when he was you know he was just bouncing like a top in the water and as Brett came to pick him up he could see all the blood so he couldn't work out what was going on um, Glenn was in a full wetsuit now a full wetsuit diving a uh, skiing wetsuit is pretty pretty heavy it's full of water Glenn was a pretty big guy you know um, Brett just looked at him and just he just leaned over and grabbed him and pulled him out of the water in one hit, bang, straight up into the boat. And then they drove in, got him into the hospital uh, and did all that. So what had happened was he effectively lost an ear. He um, had two cracked vertebrae in his back. The doctor had said he was about one centimetre from paraplegic and two centimetres from dead effectively so he was yeah. a very very lucky boy very very lucky boy i went in and saw him the next day at hospital uh he was all bandaged up the only way like all he could do was move his eyes he couldn't move his head the only way he could move his head was if you picked his head up off the pillow and twisted it for him a little bit just so he could move it around because he was so you know his, his back had spasmed his neck was spasmed he had he tore all the muscles in his neck he'd done all that He'd lost his ear. I didn't know what to say to him. I just looked at him and said, mate, can I have your sunglasses? You're not going to need them. <laughs> so he said to me, will you, you know, he was 
not happy. He said, you mongrel, we'll stop making me laugh. It hurts too much. So um, anyway, he, he, that's what he did. And of course, he couldn't play anymore. That was the end of the 87 season. So we finished, we lost the grand final. My father had passed away. And then Glenn had that um, accident, you know, and you're kind of like, we couldn't wait to see the end of 87, you know. The only good thing that happened to me that year was I actually got married. So you just couldn't <laughs> that catch was the a one break, good yeah. thing that happened. Oh, mate, we just, yeah, just, you know, it was just uh, one of those things. It was just you know, one thing after another, you know. So, but he was very lucky, you know. Now he has a joke about it. And, you know, he's got a prosthetic ear and you wouldn't even know unless you had a good look at it. We've had a few uh, times over the years. We've had a few jokes, and uh, he's played a few jokes on people, and uh, it's good. So he's he's really comfortable with it now, and it is what it is, you know. And it's a it's a, a very good story, and one that he was able to live to tell. Yeah, absolutely, very very lucky there. And Mike, just just keeping it family real quick. Your son Cody, what was it like to uh, to see your boy play in the same level that you did in the the National Basketball League? Well, you might remember Wildcats star Mike Ellis was one of the shortest players in the squad. Well, his son Cody is following in his dad's footsteps, but the 23-year-old not only has much bigger feet, he's a towering six foot nine. 23 years ago, Perth basketball legend Mike Ellis welcomed a 10-pound baby boy. Today, Cody, at six foot nine, towers above his famous father. The Ellises don't know where the height came from. Kind of a freak accident I guess. <laughs> but the DNA sporting trail is clear. He's also just got a very good basketball brain. He, uh, he understands the game, he sees the floor well and he uh, makes good decisions with the ball. Cody will play for the Boomers this week after a successful stint in US college basketball. Yes! He shot it literally from the hip. Yeah, it was great. It was great to see Cody. He had a, a you know, good career in the, in the college system over in the States. And went to a couple of NCAA you know, tournaments and played in those and then Came back here. It would always have been nice to see Cody play for the Wildcats. That didn't eventuate. Um, yeah, I was going to ask you that. Uh, yeah. yeah, look, you know, he was offered a, uh, a development role, but you know, I think he proved that he was actually able to play at that level. I think the development role wasn't really ideal. Whereas Shane Hill and the Sydney Kings offered him a, a complete role, a proper role as a player which he did. He came in and, and he did very well for a couple of years there and then obviously a couple more years at Illawarra um, under Bevo. I think there was a chance that Bevo was going to be in here, in which case he'd already asked Cody to sell up. I think he had uh, more at that stage as well. So two of them would have come to Perth, but um, that didn't eventuate. Um, Bevo didn't get the job, um, so that didn't happen. So Cody played and you know, there was a um, there was just a, a very very good thing for Cody to be able to play at that level. And I still I, I think look, I think he could have had a longer career than he had, but circumstance was what it was. Illawarra had a bit of a, a change of uh, the guard and there was a bit of a upheaval and they sort of did a bit of a clean sweep, which was disappointing, but it was what it was. The one thing that I think not too many people know or realise, and I, I'm not too sure how many people can say that they've got this, but I think we may be the only family that have had three generations play or be involved in the NBL because, well, at a, at a level. And so my father coached, I coached and played, and my son played. So that's three generations that have all been involved in the playing slash coaching in the NBL level. And, you know, so that, again, that's something that, you know, we never advertise or never talk about much or anything like that, but it's in the back of our mind that that's a pretty cool thing to be able to have done. You know, as a as a family, 
I mean, there's pl- been plenty of father sons, but I don't think there's been three generations. I don't think so. Yeah, I'm not aware of any, but look, as again, I'm happy to be. So, what does it mean to you to have the number six jersey retired in your honour? Yeah, that was a huge thing. I mean, that's not something as a player you ever even think about. You know, it's not something you ask for. It's not something you want. Um, but when it happens, you're like, oh wow, okay, well, it obviously meant something to somebody, and uh, yeah, it's a real honour. It really is. And, and seeing it up there each week, you know, and I, I was the first active player or, or retired player to have my retired that's because I'm the oldest one around mate that's why but um, <laughs> you know to have it up there next to Scotty so the, the the first one up there is Scott Fenton and then there's mine um, you know I, I feel really proud that it, uh, it's up there and I, I'm really happy that it's up next to Scotty as well yeah absolutely and Mike just just as we are now about to close up I've got a couple of questions left for you and I always ask my guests these questions in in one sentence in your entire career in the NBL, who is the best player you ever played with and why? Who's the best player you ever played against and why? Who is the best coach you ever played under and why? And for you, I'll add one more. Who's the best player you ever coached and why? The best player I ever played with would be, uh, I'd have to say, probably Ricky Gray. You know, I had some fantastic players. Crawford, Tinder, you know, those guys, they're amazing guys. But Ricky, I guess we... And we only played for a short period of time. We only played, uh, you know, what, three seasons with Ricky. But we had a great synergy because, you know, no one could guard us full court, for example, because if they put pressure on Ricky, I'd bring it up. If they put pressure on me, Ricky would bring it up, you know. And we, we actually were a really good foil together. Um, and, uh, you know, and Ricky was just a great player and a, and, a, and a good guy. And I really enjoyed playing with him. I'm still a good mate with him to, the, to this day. Best player I ever played against. There was a there was a couple of guys that I played against that were very very good. I think to start with, there was a guy by the name of Dwayne McLean that played for Melbourne. Uh, sorry for, uh, for Sydney. Sydney, the D train. He was one of the most difficult guys to guard because he could just score in so many different ways. He was phenomenal. Um, so he was he was just a real real tough competitor to play against. Uh, he was just a scoring machine. Uh, I had one playoff series, and it was I think the the 90 series against a guy by the name of Joe Hillman that played for North Melbourne. He was their point guard. I was our point guard. And we, were, we went head-to-head and we, we were flat out going at it. Like I mean, it was just about fisticuffs, that series. You know, you could play a lot more physical back in those days than you can now. And, uh, mate, it was... I just hated that guy, you know. He was, it was just unbelievable to play against. It was just such a great challenge all the time. And I remember after the series, we'd won it. We got into the grand final. He came up to me after the game and shook my hand. And he just hung on to me for a second and said, mate, that was the most enjoyable series I've ever played, even though we lost. I just had such a a great time going up against you. That was so much fun. Thank you very much. And I kind of went, wow, wow, that was awesome. I really, that that took me aback, you know, because you don't think of a, a guy taking it that way, but he did. He just, really enjoyed the challenge and, and as did I. So he was one and then ultimately the most difficult guy that I've ever had to guard was Andrew Gaze. You know, he is, as I said earlier on, probably the best player that's ever been in this league. And more so because their entire offences revolved around Andrew. You could never take one possession off because if you did, bang, he'd score. It was just one of those things. So guarding him was a challenge every every single time we played it. And I really 
really enjoyed doing that. And, and your goal for him was if you could keep him under 20, <laughs> you had a hell of a game, you know? So yeah. uh, that was that was kind of what we did. And yeah, that, was, that was a great time. And he, he's a great guy, Andrew, too. He's a really good guy. Hell of a competitor, but just such a good guy. Best coach I ever played under? I, you know what? I think probably my dad. My dad, because he was a player's coach. You know, he was that that sort of guy. You know, um, he really was. I, I just really enjoyed playing under him because I played not just at Wildcats, but I played juniors, seniors, and all that sort of stuff under him. There was a couple of guys that came through that were were pretty good. I mean, I coached Ricky, but that was at the end of towards the end of his career, so he's kind of still a hell of a player. So he was he was probably one of the ones that was pretty good. The guy by the name of uh, Rashad Tucker that came and played with us, and he yes. played with us that year. Won the MVP uh, that year. Yeah, he was he was a very, very good player. He had his own issues and other things that went with it, but he was probably an underrated guy that a lot of people kind of let go under the radar. But he was he was pretty tough. When he was on, right, he was he was almost impossible to stop. He was such a great player. Yeah, I think that probably covers most of them, I think. Hopefully that answered most of those. No, absolutely it did. Mike, you are one of the most integral figures of the Perth Wildcats and it's been absolutely awesome to have you on. Thank you very much for coming on the show. My pleasure, Daniel. No problems at all. And that's a wrap. Thank you to everyone for tuning into A5Q. Don't forget to spread the word, subscribe, leave a rating. Until next time, old sport.